0: Just testing you, right? Well, as long as I don't turn to Genesis and start there, which is our Monday nights, right? Thank you guys for correcting me there, because, uh, yeah, I think I'm more prepared for Philippians chapter 2. <laughs> uh, the text we look at today really is uh, one of the most significant sections in the Bible uh, about the Incarnation. And I think it's formidable. I I think it's amazing how it presents the deity and the humanity of Christ. And that's the doctrine that we find here. That's very, very important. Uh, There definitely is doctrine here that's incredible. It focuses on the very person and the work of Christ. But in the setting here, in this context, Paul is exhorting the Philippians, the church there in Philippi, to regard others as more important than themselves. So as he goes to this great particular section, it's, this is high doctrine, yet at the same time, and probably even more important, is that he's stressing humility in this text. Uh, he's definitely emphasizing it. Uh, this is the supreme example of what humility is. And of course, it's Christ. And that's what the Philippians were to follow. Um The doctrine of the Incarnation is definitely present. The practical aspect is very, very present. We're going to try to do both of those today in verses 5 through 8. But the application of humility is really where it's all geared to. Uh, It's stressed. Even though you have a diamond here as far as doctrine is concerned, a sparkling theological treatise here. We really do. And we don't want to miss that. The main point is to identify that uh, not only did God become man, but in becoming man, He is the supreme illustration of what humility uh, is and how the Philippians and us are called to follow that humility example. So what you see here is self-sacrifice. You see self-denial. And that's what was introduced in the first few verses of chapter two, and even uh, even before that, as we ended chapter one. Um, I will tell you this: this is one of the greatest passages in all the Bible, in all the writings of the Apostle Paul. This one uh, sticks out as one of those highlights, um, and I can hardly do justice to it, to be real honest with you. And I think uh, it would take us weeks to go through this text and treat it even closer to fair. Um, but we're going to try to get the best that we can out of this, not only the doctrine from it, but how it applies to each one of us. And so that's what we're going to try uh, through the Holy Spirit. And, and we're going to see how rich this is. Another thing I want to add, this uh, is probably, and from what I gather from uh, historical sources and commentaries, uh, was a hymn. That the very early church sang, and of course, as the canon was established, it shows that it was really part of Scripture. Uh, uh, It it was definitely inspired by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to uh, to Paul as he wrote this, as they were probably familiar with this. Uh, Anyway, um, it's it's nice to know that they sang particular songs. And that would help them memorize Scripture, because you remember, they didn't really have Scripture to be carrying around. They might have had a letter from Paul, and it was to the church. They didn't have copiers and printers and uh, faxes and such as we have today. Uh, so the best way to memorize songs would be to sing them, and uh, that would be one way. What we want to do is help each one of us here to remember what the flow is, there's an argument, I guess you could say, that's been going on in this book that Apostle Paul or this letter that he is, has written to the Philippians and how they are to face opposition, how, to, how they are to face persecution. And with all that joyous to be there even though they're in a fallen world, uh, he shows how we can do that. And uh, so they are to stay steadfast. You remember that? And uh, stand firm, striving together for the faith of, of the Gospel. And they are to be united. It's essential that they be united. So we've seen un- uh, unity here is a really key thing. They're going to have to be humble. And they're also going to have to be united and helpful to each one. As Paul brings that forth. So this is uh, the gospel uh, that's brought forth. Um, to have gospel unity. To have gospel humility. To have gospel helpfulness. And we see that really in the first four verses. That's what's been established as he goes into verse 5. So the example Apostle Paul is displaying here in this passage is designed to encourage those Philippians uh, to good deeds, to love and good deeds and as they work in the body of Christ, uh, pursuing that life of joy. Remember the theme all throughout Philippians is joy, so remember that. And because you have joy is because you have been given glory to God. And that's what He's designed for us. So live in humility, to live in unity, and in helpfulness to one another. Let's uh, stand and let's honor God's Word here as we read Philippians 2, 5-8. Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus Father, we thank You again for Your Word. What an amazing passage this is. And I just uh, pray for Your Holy Spirit to be able to take these words off the page and make it come to life to each one of us. Um, Whatever weakness and frailness that I have in presenting it, uh, we pray that the authority of the Word of God would uh, implant on our hearts uh, how to be... Uh, Humble and and unified in the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's be seated. Let's start right off here in verse 5. And as we said, this is a perfect illustration of verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So, that's where we were at. That's where we left off. Um, He is the model of this. What he just said was something that sounds so almost impossible. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do you guys understand that? Do you really understand what He is saying for us to do? We're not to be drowning in our sorrows, drowning in our selfish thoughts and things that are not going right in our own lives and we're down and up. You know what He's saying? Forget yourself. Isn't that what Jesus said? Deny yourself. Take up the cross. Follow Me. That is an incredible thing that I don't think anybody here can follow. I really don't. I have no confidence in you. Except for Jesus Christ in you. Except for the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we do that and sometimes we really fail because we are really looking at ourselves. It's, it's a hard thing. But here's the model. He is the model for everything for us to be able to do. But doing those things is not the gospel. And we'll get to that uh, later. Um, We're to pattern our lives after His humility, but we're going to see how we can do this as we go through this uh, passage. How can we do that? Well, verse 5 has a key word here. Have this attitude. Have this attitude. The word here is a word we have seen before. And it's franeo. And if you remember, last week I think we... Brought that forth too. That means thinking. Have this thinking in yourselves. Have this attitude, this thinking, this mind, this outlook. Have this outlook. What he's saying is begin thinking like Christ thinks. And I know you're saying, oh, how is that? Well, I always say, the Word of God is amazing. <laughs> This is how we know Christ, right? And this is where, where it starts. This is how you have, have the mind. Uh, it's the attitude of humility. What attitude? Look, look back in verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of what? Mind. Thinking. Froneo. So he uses humility and mind together. Have this attitude, this thinking. Have this humility... Where there is unity. The unity. Why have this attitude? Well, it's found in verse 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same... What's the word there? Mind. Of the same mind. He's speaking to the church there. Not to individuals. It can be individuals, but it comes together as I'm telling you as a whole church, how can you have unity with yourself? It's unity with others. Have this thinking or this mind maintaining the same love united in spirit intent on one purpose do you see unity one same same mind same thinking that's the thinking of christ so it's the attitude of humility for the reason, in verse 2, for the unity of the church. This is how you maintain the unity of the church by thinking the way that Christ thinks. Because of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 1 and 2. Why should we be motivated to this attitude? We're just backing up as we go in this, in this text, as we have questions. Why should I have this? These are things you should be saying. So, okay, I'm going to have this attitude. Why? I don't feel like it. I don't want to have this attitude. I'm going to think about myself and think how bad I've had it and how down I am today. Uh, Sorry, you have no room for that because verse 1 says this. Are you listening? Are you applying this? Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion. Now, I'm not going to spend time on these verses, but this is what sets it up. We spent on this last week, and we're spending too much time because we' got to get on to verse five, but until we understand these, we don't know why he's saying this. This is our motive because of the holy Jesus' love for you, his care and his compassion, his fellowship with you, and because of the Holy Spirit who fellowships with you, right? Did you see that? That is our motive, and that's why we can do anything because of Christ. Oh, that sounds like a, another verse that we find in Philippians later, isn't it? Uh, strength of Christ. Okay, so attitude. Have this attitude in... What's the next word? Yourselves. And here is a plurality. And it's speaking of one another. You can't practice this alone. Are you learning how to read the Word? And as you read the Word, do you just with that or do you meditate on it and then say okay I'm going to put this in my life it's so easy to stick it up here and say that's really cool and not to ever live it that's what Paul is concerned with he wants to make sure that they do this and then he's going to give the the motive why and such you have to do this there has to be others that we practice humility he's speaking to the church the whole body here as he speaks uh, dealing with unity Paul is speaking to the whole church so he expects them to maintain the unity you have to do this with one another this is a command and uh, you cannot do it individually. Uh, J. Ligon Duncan says it requires the whole congregation together to embrace this exhortation. I'm exhorting us right now. Let's embrace this exhortation. Have this attitude in yourselves. Ah, this is where we, we start using this, right? What, what he has said. Quite, uh, quite useful. Okay, what's next? Have this attitude in yourselves which was also... In Christ Jesus. There's the motive again. Now, he's already mentioned him in verse 1. Did you know that every message that you deal with, whether it be Bible study or whether it be um, other settings or or right here, did you know anytime you get in the Word of God, who's the focus? It's Christ, is not it? Relationship with Christ. That's how we can do these things, by His grace. We're not talking about this is a matter of commands and you must do this and all of a sudden you become very legalistic. No, when we look at Christ, now we, we have that flip-flop and now we want to do those things not because you're going to bite the bullet and I'm going, to be, I'm going to do this, but you look at Christ and you realize there's our power, there's our strength, there's the grace. Be like Jesus is what he's saying. You know what? Like, be like Jesus is not the Gospel. He's, oh, how can you say that? Be like Jesus. Well, isn't that the Gospel? No, it's not. It's so important for us to understand that as we come to this passage, because even believers will be very conscious of the way that we fall or we fail. We sin. And we know that we come short of the standard. I know I'm supposed to be like Jesus but I don't feel like it today. We fall short of that Christ-likeness. Have we acted like Jesus Christ every moment this morning? Have we acted like You'd like to think so. But if our salvation depended upon that, we'd all be going to hell. Pity on us. Because we can't be like Jesus Until we look at the victory of the cross. And of course, that's where salvation starts. And of course, it's really good for sanctification. We can't just muster it up and say, I'm going to be like Jesus today. All of a sudden, I'm going to be like Jesus. And it's impossible because we're going to be doing that from the flesh. Uh, It's relationship with Christ is the key to life. Relationship with Him. You must know Him. And you know what? It comes to desiring Him. Having a taste for Him. And once you develop that taste, you want more. So you pursue Him even more and more. You can't get enough of Him. He is what life is about. And that is where likeness is. It's the way we live with Christ. It's our relationship. It's living with Christ. When we look at the cross, what do we see? We see Him there. We see Him dying. We see Him dying for us. And when we start to see that, that's where we start to become like Christ. It's not only salvation, but it can be in our daily walk. You can look back at that cross and that's the way to glory. If you look back at the cross, what do you see? You see suffering. When you see the way of the cross, is the way that we have to go. We have to go through a a life that sometimes presents problems. The way up is what? The way down. And that's really what's being developed here. Jesus is highly exalted, but we see Him go down and down and down further. As you look at this text, Theologically we see him taking steps all the way to as low as he could go. And then we see the next text which is next week and it brings him back up. So uh, it's the way we live. Before Christ was exalted, he had to go all the way down, not only to the earth and becoming like man, but what did he have to do? He had to go to the grave. So we must see that and be like Christ. So can you see why I can say being like Jesus is not the Gospel because we can't do that until we see the cross. That's salvation and trusting and believing in that, in that work that He did. And then as a result of that, the Gospel is the good news of what He has done. And now, because of that, we have it in the right order. Now we can start to live like that as we keep that ever before us. Christ, the cross, the suffering, the way down. You can say, I feel like I'm way down. Well, good, because God is going to use that. He's using that to bring you up in Christ. Ah, now, here we go. Here it is. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. You, you, you want to be like Christ? Have the attitude, the thinking of Christ. Well, what was that? Well, here we go. Here's our steps that are going to proceed down and down and down and down further. Verse 6. This is the abnegation of Jesus. And I know most of you are probably saying, abnegation, what is that? And we'll get to that. Um, We're going to have humiliation before we have exaltation. Like I say, verses 5 through 8 is your humility. But when you see verses 9... On following. It's the exaltation. Don't have time to get to that this week. But the way down is first, Uh, it's a condescension. Christ has set down aside his rights, took on our humanity. As he was self abased, he took on the ultimate shame. And this is the path that we too. Must take. Now, if uh, some of you were here Wednesday, uh, you'll probably think that I have just copied right off Ryan. And you're right, because he happened to be using this text, <laughs> which is really good, because it supports this. He was in John 1, starting at verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then he read on through, uh, speaking about the glory and, and Christ being manifested and such. And then we used this supporting passage in Philippians 2. And uh, So, there's a lot of things here that probably sounds repeats to some of you guys here from Wednesday. Uh, Thank you, Ryan. (laughs) Can I steal those? (laughs) No matter how far you have to go to humble yourselves before someone else, you will never go as far as what Christ did. He said, I can't go any further. I can't take it anymore. I just can't take it. Well, the Savior stooped to the lowest point. The most possible lowest point. And we'll never match that. We want to be like Christ. And yes, we will have to be humble. There is the cross before the crown. You've heard of that song um, Isaac Watts wrote. The wondrous cross. We pour contempt on all our pride. That is where everything starts so that we can humble ourselves and see somebody else above us. To take them and put us them above even though we feel like we're above them. Wow. Pour contempt on all our pride. Apostle Paul says here's the very first step and you're counting as one another as more significant. Everybody in here is more significant than you. And you know what? That makes us all equal. The first last and the last first. <laughs> and if we'd all do that, there wouldn't be anybody above and there wouldn't be anybody beneath and you're right on even keel. Might have different levels as far as growth in Christ, but we're all in Christ the same way, brothers and sisters. Looking to who Christ is. Mm. Now, he says, who although he existed in the form of God. The word form is a key word. We're going to take our, a few moments with this. This is the word morphe. you probably heard that term, morph. Uh, this is the very essential being of God. It's the very nature of the very essence of God this form never changes now some of those superhero uh, shows and, and TV shows we've seen that you know to morph you know is it to transform to change forms well in this sense here he never changes his form of being God is always that way it's eternal and what we're speaking of here is the deity of Christ he starts at the very top. As high as God can go, which is, that's it. That's the ultimate. It is who He is. If you look in John 1, now what I'm going to do, Ryan, I'm going to steal from you, and I'm going to take John 1, which is where we've been, and we're just going to read that immediately. Uh, everybody knows this. Everybody believes the deity of Christ, so I don't really have to really pound this in. I won't spend a lot of time on it. There are many verses on the deity of Christ, but John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. He was face to face with Him. Face to face. Right there, a great relationship. And the Word was God. And verse 14, And the Word became flesh. There's the Incarnation, which is dealing with what our Philippians 2 text is. And dwelt among us. He pitched His tent. He tabernacled among us. Came down and lived with man. And we saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course, he explains, this is how we see God, is through the person of Christ. Do you have Christ exalted today in your life? This is how we see God. It's the only way we can see God, because in that text, Ryan showed us that we, nobody's ever seen God. If you read the text on down through, you can say that and say, well, how can that be when people saw Christ? So, this is how God manifests himself. There are many verses with that. Old Testament teaches that God does not have a body. God. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have hands. God manifested Himself in the Old Testament by the Shekinah glory, for instance, at the the tabernacle, at the temple. Um, And then we see He manifested Himself in the most extreme way through His Son. In these last days, Hebrews 1 says, He has shown Himself uh, and uh, that glory is seen through uh, Christ. He is God in flesh. He is God incarnate. It almost sounds like a Christmas message this morning. As a matter of fact, we've probably used Philippians 2 for a Christmas message before. Uh, very fitting. That Christmas message continually goes, doesn't it? God coming in the, uh, in the flesh, but He was the very form of God. We must see Him in His divinity, in His deity. He's always been God. He is God right now, right? So he does, and one thing we want to remember is that even though he became man, he fully, even though he gave up his, some rights and privileges, he still remained God. And uh, that's what he is uh, impressing upon us here. This is the apex. This is the high point from which he stoops down. We must see him as high as he is. And that's what we're working on every week as we read Scripture. We want My idea is to bring you and myself to a higher, loftier view of Christ than we had last week. And that's hard to do. And it's only by the Spirit of God and His Word that impresses upon us how high He is. We haven't seen how high and lofty that is yet, have we? Wait till we see Him as He is. Do we have a higher view than we did a year ago? I would like to think we do. That's the whole point. See that glory. Now, it's interesting. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Equality. That is the word that explains the form of God. This is the word that explains the form or Morphe. This explains the form. It means to be equal with. And you might have equality there. He is equal with God. And then he's going to use a, a negative sense. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. We'll get that. But if you go to John 5.18, he is equal with God, which is saying the same thing, that he is God. Uh He says, the Father is working until now and I myself am working. And then he says in verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him. Why? Because He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, which meant what? Making Himself equal with God. What does equal with God to the Jew mean? It means He is God. Why did they want to kill Him? Because he claimed to be God. Wow. He made himself equal with God. So the word here did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. As he came in the flesh, now as it's moving on, the word for grasp means to hold on tightly, never letting it go. You've seen where people hold on to things tightly. And that can be good in a sense. You don't want to lose something. But sometimes we might hold on to things that we need to let go, right? Uh, here, he refused to cling to all the rights and privileges that he has as being God. As he is still 100% God, as he's moving on here, Paul is showing forth him becoming flesh. Um Those privileges and honors. Now, abnegation, as we have in that word there, it's his refusal to stand on his own rights and privileges and demand to be treated as he really deserves to be treated. He could have come as the king coming in all of his majesty and had everybody worship him and go down. He could have come that way, but that's not God's plan, so therefore he couldn't come that way. But imagine, he didn't do that. He didn't demand uh, what he deserved. His refusal here was to refuse to cling to his own prerogatives. His refusal as he came in the world to demand that he would be treated as he properly deserves to be treated. When a king would be seen by people People would bow before them and they, they would demand to be honored in that way and to come before the king in the right way. If you get that opportunity, right? Uh, but his way was the act of humility. And that's what we want to stress here. This is an act. An act of humility. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's what we're moving into now, Is this emptying... Um, Now, as we're going through theology here, we must come with application or we'll treat this text very unfairly because remember what the whole motive of, of this is. Unity. Humility. Right? The children of God... That's right, there's enough. The children of God have a high position. Ephesians 1 will just blow you away. It shows who we are in Christ, right? Adopted in the family, elected, predestined, adopted, and on and on. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Look at the amazing privileges that we have knowing who God is. We live in the heavenlies. All those things, the promises that He has. We're in a high exalted position, folks, as we live by faith. Christians have been lifted up into the heavenlies. And we have those blessings. And that's where we start from. We want to see who we are in Christ. After one has confessed their sin and repented and become a Christian, one of the first things that I like to do in discipleship is to show them Ephesians 1 and show them who they are now in Christ. It is not a self-exaltation. It's showing the exaltation where Christ has put them in a high favorable position. And it's something that He has done. And look what, where we're at. That's incredible. And no longer is it about myself. It's about what He's done. Look where He's put me. So now we go into the action here. But as, as we go into this action, we must not cling tightly to all these blessings and benefits. That we have. That's where we've been put. But we're not to be selfish. We're willing to put everything down for the sake of another. To put things aside so we can start the process of going down. Spiraling down. That's what a Christian does. Forget yourself. He dies, doesn't he? You say, How do I die? This is. I think this is the ultimate answer right here. This is how we die to ourselves. We go into verse 7. Now we've gone from the attitude. From the attitude of Christ of not clinging on. Have that attitude now in your own selves. Don't cling on to all those things and freedoms that you have. Hold on to them loosely because other people are going to need you Now we have the action. Christ took action. He not only refused to stand on His own rights and privileges, what did He do? It says here in verse 7, but emptied Himself. This is the word kenosis, which means self-emptying. First thing, take the cue what Ryan said. Here's what it doesn't mean. And uh, there are some teachings that are heretical and uh, where he just gave up everything, self-emptied and, and he uh, really wasn't God. I'll, we'll get into a few of those. But his deity, he did not empty. His deity is fully there. He's fully God. And he never gave that up. He never gave up his deity. Well, what does it mean? He emptied himself of, let's say, privileges, um, How about the glory that He had as being at the right hand of the Father? As being in a 100% perfect relationship with the Father? In the beginning of the Word, the Word was with God, face to face. He gave that up for that time when He was here on earth. Look in John 17. The great prayer. The great prayer for the disciples. The great prayer for us. And He starts off that great prayer in 17 of John, verse 1. Jesus spoke these things and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. And then we... Read on down in verse 5. He says, Now, Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You before the world was. The glory I've always had. So He, in a sense, gave up His glory. He did show His glory in some way, but not fully. And We know the... um, in, in Matthew where you have the mount of transfiguration he peeled back his flesh for instance in a sense you can say that and showed his glory to Peter James and John uh, a sense of that look in Matthew 24:36 and you're probably familiar with this text 24:36 but that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. I think we talked about that last Wednesday too, right? It was like of knowing what was going to happen. Uh, we're talking about the, uh, the maybe some end times here. Heaven and earth pass away, my words will not pass away, but that day and hour no one will know. Uh, uh, some dealing with the omniscience that he had. There's some things that he gave up, which he would have known if he knows all things, right? But he set that aside. It's not that he totally gave it up and never had omniscience again, but some things that were uh, limited. Second uh, Corinthians eight nine says he became poor for our sakes. He was rich, but he became poor. Matter of fact, he didn't even have a home. When he was doing his ministry, he had to stay with people. And sometimes he'd just go up on the mountain and just er, pray all night with the Father. He gave up his face-to-face communion with the Father. He prayed, but it wasn't in the same position that he had had before. And he has a tremendous prayer life. But humility gives up a lot. And this is Jesus giving up a lot. We too are to see the needs of others. Do you see the application here? We too need to stoop to meet wherever that need is. Try to find out where it is and stoop down. Do that. In Christ, He did it. He emptied Himself Here we go. Taking the form of a bondservant. And before we get into that bondservant, you you see that word form again? And again, it's dealing with that form that doesn't change. It's the very essence, the very nature, the very character. He took on the very nature, the character of a slave. Took the form of a bondservant. Took on their very character. Slave. He came all the way from... What's the opposite of a slave? A king. He came all the way from being a king. Even though he remains king, people don't recognize that. To a slave. And of course, Paul addresses uh, himself and others that were slaves. Doulos is the word. Not just servant. Bond servant. It's, it's slave. It's the idea. Look in Isaiah 52, verse 13 and 14. Isaiah 52, 13 and 14. And this is getting into the Son of Man, the prophecy of Him like 700 years before Christ is born. This is about the suffering servant. He gives us a little bit about the exalted servant for a moment. Verse 13, Behold, My servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many were astonished at you, as He speaks to Christ. My people, so His appearance was marred more than any man. Speaking about His Son. His appearance was marred more than any man and His form more than the sons of men. Appearance was marred. And you go on through Isaiah 53 and we see He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon Him, no appearance. Uh, he wasn't, people weren't attracted to Him because of His beauty and some of that's dealing with right at the cross and it can be even the point, you know, it was an exceptional uh, looking man that people were attracted because He was a beautiful man and He looked like God. Uh, he was man and, uh, of course, He was despised, forsaken, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Despised. That's the way slaves are. He didn't come to wear the garments of a slave. No, he was a slave. He took the form. He was really a slave. He actually became a slave. (laughs) The king became a slave. Do you see how far we're going down here? He emptied himself, but he came a slave. He served men as a slave would serve, he took the burden. Slaves have burdens, don't they? He took the burden of our sin. Uh, let's go to um, Luke twenty-two, twenty-seven. What a burden! The slave had to take on our burden. Twenty-two, twenty-seven. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Who's greater? Well, obviously, the one who there's at the table that's sitting there. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? See, but I am among you as the one who serves. Of course, we think of John thirteen, the night before he's crucified, right? Of course, what is he doing? He's serving them, and he very visibly as he gets down and he washes their feet. Wow, that's a that's a servant that would do that. You know, he just demonstrated that. Look in Matthew twenty, verse twenty-eight visibly the things that he did. 20 28 Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served like a king but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The slave. So he emptied himself gave up some privileges, some of that honor. took the form of a bondservant, a slave. He became that. And then, and being made in the likeness of men. Likeness is dealing with truly being human. Not like he is fully God and he, he looks... He looks like a man. He not only looks like a man, He is a man. And here's our incarnation. Not only taking the form of a bond servant, but being made in the likeness of men. He totally identified with man. That's us. I mean, He identified with us. He took the form of a man. He took the attributes that mankind has. Humanists. He took on real humanists the Incarnation. Now, we've already established that He's fully God, right? We can't negate that. We can't take that away. He never gave that up. But He is fully man. And this is incredible. And all of a sudden, your mind, the more you think on it, starts just wandering and spinning. And it's like, I can't grasp all this. How can a man be a God or a God be man? He is the God-man. The God-man. He is. You know what? Eventually it's going to lead into a mystery. We have to understand that doctrine. We have to agree with that. We have to confess that. You look in the confessions and you'll see that that is a main ingredient in the confessions. It was very important in the early church as you look at the creeds. Very important in the confessions. It's a glorious doctrine that every Christian believes. Any Christian, or somebody that says he's a Christian, but he does not believe in the Incarnation, you know what I can flatly just say? <laughs> he's not a Christian. It's not just a matter of understanding. It's a matter of saying, okay, I believe it. I don't understand this, but I have to believe it because that's what it says right here. It says it in John 1, it says it here in Philippians and other texts, but this is a beautiful text to, to be on. But you know what? The early church had to fight to maintain this unity. that that they had. And that's why Paul writes this. And he's, he's emphasizing Christ. They had to fight to maintain this truth all throughout the early church. It's a great doctrine. It's a great practical thing. There were church councils that had to meet to clarify the problems that came up. They had to make arguments for this truth. There were people that believed it, but there were people that didn't believe it. And there were a lot of heresies floating around in the early, early days of the church all through the early centuries. And I'll tell you what, I think they covered them all. I think they covered all the different heresies about the person of Christ. I don't think there's anything new today. You look at any cult, a cult claiming to be Christian, or they they will say, yeah, we believe in Jesus and, and such, but if they don't believe what we're just talking about, they are a cult. They are outside the Christian realm. They may have a new way of explaining it, but it's not anything new. All of those things were done and explained way back in the early days. It's no doubt that that it's already been done. I'll tell you a few of them, and and I don't want to lose you here. I don't want to get, you know, uh, losing people in in history, but I I love the history of the church. So let me just take a few minutes, and and I'll cover this real quickly. Uh, Try to hang with me if you can, and and a lot of you will know some of this, Uh, and maybe all of it. Probably a lot more than I did. But there were the Ebionites who came along and they insisted that Jesus was a mere man. That's all He was. He was not deity as, as we see here in Philippians which shows. The holiest of all men, I mean, nobody could reach as holy as He could, but he, that's all He was. Then there were the Apollinarians and they acknowledged His deity, but they denied that He had a human soul. The Nestorians... They made him both God and man, but in so doing, they made him two persons the God person, the man person, in one body. A man in whom the divine logos dwell rather than a single person who has both human and divine. Then there were the Eutychians, the. Uh, Monophysites, I guess uh, there's a different way of pronouncing it, I can't, uh, Monophysites and the Monophilites, (laughs) they went to the opposite extremes, fusing the divine and the human natures of Christ into one new nature. And Christ has two natures. I mean, when when you think of uh, Him being human and Him being uh, God. The Arian claimed that he was not God. The Arians uh, would be something like the Jehovah's Witnesses today. He uh, was maybe a little God. Uh, uh, he was less than that. He was the highest of all the created beings. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then there were the uh, Docetists, uh, Docetists. They denied that Jesus was really human. He really wasn't human. And they really taught that his body was just an illusion. And some of these we've, been, we've addressed probably in First John when we were there. That was some of the views. I think it pretty well covers it all. And uh, believe me, those kind of thoughts are here today. And those people will say they're Christians. Well, they had to have church councils. And they repeatedly had to keep coming together to examine the Scripture and get the church together. It's be impossible today. The church is all spread out, so many different denominations. How can you all get together and be one? Especially if some of them don't even believe these truths that we see here in Philippians. Um, As soon as one issue was settled, there'd be another issue that would come up to the top. Uh, In 325, you had the Council of Nicaea, and there was a little town near Constantinople, Constantinople, and it had to condemn Arianism. It's already been done. That's Jehovah's Witnesses. So that's why we can boldly say they're not of God, they're not of Christ because they deny the deity of Christ. That's what it's all about. Um, anyway, uh, within 60 years of that, you had the Nicene Council and it took on the full deity of Christ and, and, and had to explain that. Then there was the Council of Constantinople and it had to deal with Apollinarianism which went overboard, as we mentioned earlier, on the side of Christ's deity and not doing justice to his human side. So they had to address that. In 381, the Council of Constantinople condemned that as heresy. All of these things have been done. So Christians can boldly say, yeah, that's outside the realm of Christianity. They are not Christians. But the only thing is, Christians are afraid to say that now and say, well, I can't say that they're not Christians because they say they are Christians. The war against heresies dealing with Christ continued and you had the Council of Chalcedon. This is the last one I'll talk about and then we'll move on. That was in 451. You see how early this is? Right in the first few centuries. They had to issue a statement about the person of Christ. And it stood as the very definitive test of who Christ is, of what orthodoxy is, from there until now. Now, this is the statement. It's very brief. Matter of fact, it's one sentence. But it's a long sentence. And uh, this is what it says. And I'll try to make it understandable. I don't want to lose you, and then we'll move on. Ready? Okay, here's what they said at council We then, following the Holy Fathers, in history, it goes back, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Perfect in Godhead, right? There's His deity. And also perfect in manhood. Deity. Man. Very God and very man of a rational soul and body. Co-essential. Homo usios. That's identical in nature. Identical in nature with the Father according to the Godhead. And consubstantial, that's identical in nature with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days... For us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, that sounds like a confession of faith, doesn't it? It it is. The God-bearer, Theodicus, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Now those are key statements. Two natures without uh, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, and concurring in one person and one subsistence, two natures, one person, and this is dealing with Christ, One and the same Son, only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have spoken of Him, and the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. So they agreed with what had been taught. That is the belief of the church. That is what we confess. That is what we say. That's what we agree with. We're part of the church. This is about Christ. That has to be agreed upon. There are no, There is no room to negotiate. So somebody doesn't claim the deity of Christ or the uh, humanity of Christ and such, they are not a Christian. And that's where we uh, have to leave at. The fact is that every heresy that has ever surfaced is always about who do they say that Christ is? You can look at all other religions. What do they say about Christ? If they don't say this. They can't be Christians. They, they, they will fuse the deity and the humanity or, or fuse together or they will separate the deity and the humanity. And Chalcedon declared that the two natures can neither be merged nor disconnected. Christ is both God and man. Now I took all that time to just say Christ is God and man and it says it right here. You can say, Dennis, why did you go through all that? Well it's nice to know a little bit of history, uh, because what it does, it sums up all of what we believe in one sentence. Now that was one sentence that I gave you earlier, <laughs> if you believe that or not. But it's a long paragraph. Listen, Christ was truly man. As he was God, he felt pain. He felt the sorrow. He felt hunger. He felt thirst. He felt the weaknesses that we feel. He felt weary. Yeah, you get tired. Look in Hebrews two, verse fourteen. Hebrews two, fourteen. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, flesh and blood, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. He had to do that. He took on flesh and blood. Chapter 4, verse 15. He, fully man. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without. Sin in Galatians four four as he came at the perfect time in the human way. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. Fully, man. So he had total empathy, he has total sympathy, he has total compassion for others. Okay, there's the doctrine, folks. Let's bring in the application. We too need to feel to have the empathy for others, the sympathy, the compassion, just as Christ had for us. We know we can't have that same. But we recognize where that power comes from, we should desire to do that. Now the appearance is man. Verse eight: being found in appearance as a man. that's interesting. We've already seen the likeness of man, which means he took the, he was man, fully man. We, we stressed that. And now he uses a word that is different than form. We've been seeing form, where he takes on the very character, the very nature. Of God takes on the very nature and character of a slave, of a man, and now I use the word schemata, a scheme," we get our English word from. He outwardly looked to people as a man. This comes from the angle of how man looked at him, how mankind looked at him. As he preached and healed, did that ministry, this word is different, but I think it's very interesting. It's not form. He's very nature God, very nature man, but to mankind he seemed like one of them. And that's true, but he is one of them. And they see that it was like he didn't seem any different from them. From most. He didn't seem any different. There's some sadness there. Do you see what we're saying? They didn't see the deity that he did in his actions and even claimed he so fully identified with mankind that to them He was no different. They didn't see that deity. He was so much a man. They didn't recognize who He was. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among them. As He's dwelling, as He's living among them, out and about with them every day doing all these things and in His ministry, and they didn't recognize Him. John 1 says that too. It says, They didn't receive Him. But as many as received Him, He gave eternal life, right? But most of them didn't know who He was. Even though it was there, they didn't recognize it. Most thought of Him as no better than them. And let's go one step further. The religious elite wanted to think of Him as being less. What a picture of humility. The Lord, Most High God, comes down in the form of a man, a servant, a slave, and yet people are seeing Him just as a mere man. Well, we're we're still going down, folks. And we're on the last verse and we're, we're right at the end here. We're about done. Let's go further. He humbled... Himself isn't that the key word we've been looking at in Philippians? He humbled himself by becoming Oh, stop we that done. he not only became a man, but he went lower into being being humility. He is the humility. He is the supreme example he did this for me and you. ready? we're right at the end to the point obedient to the point of death Galatians 3:13 it's also in Deuteronomy 2 Galatians 3:13 says this Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The curse is put on our Savior. Our sin. The penalty. Death. Death on a cross. He went so low he humbled himself to death. He died for men, for sinners, for you and I. And not only died for them, he died in the absolute worst possible way. As Paul says here, even death on a cross can't get any worse. Humility goes as far as it has to go to serve others to meet the need he had to meet the need of our sin he went to the cross he took on the pain the shame the the nakedness of his body the disgrace the spitting on and people saying all the things that they did jeering at him He was even deserted by His Father. The guilt of all of our sins was put on at that dark moment. Humility is defined right here in the model of Jesus Christ. There is no further humility. It can't go any further. The price, the standard, it's supremely high. It was met. Now, if the Apostle Paul said this, be humble like Christ and God will forgive you and save you. Did you hear what I just said? If he said, be humble like Christ and God will forgive and save you, do you know what? you know where you'd be going? To hell. I said, what? I said, you'd be going to hell. If he said, I want you to be humble, I want you to be like Christ, and then if you do that, I'll forgive you. Mm -mm. We can't do it. We can't be humble to do that. The glory, we're taking Lord's Supper this morning, the the glory of this table that we're going to come to, I want you to think about this because this is really the message for our Lord's Supper and it's in one sentence basically. It says this, we are so focused on ourselves. Do you hear this? Lord's Supper is, is staring right at you and saying, we're so focused on ourselves. And we're so prideful that the only one in the universe who deserved to say, I stand on my rights and on my merits and on my deserving, He abdicated all of that. And He humbled Himself to save you from the pride because you couldn't have done it. You couldn't have that humility that He did. Do you see where it's at? It focuses on Him, doesn't it? So, when we come here, we're not thinking about ourselves. We are shedding ourselves, focusing on Him and trying to get rid of pride. Sum it up like this. The Gospel is not humble yourself like Jesus and God will save you. It's God has given you the Son. He humbled Himself in our place. Because He has done that. And you have trusted in Him. You have rested in Him alone for salvation. Now, here's how you live this life. Humble yourselves like Jesus. That's what He's saying. Why? So that His glory... The glory of humility. Remember, we took all those steps down. The glory of humility. Do you understand what we just said? The glory of humility. Yes. The supreme example. The glory of humility should be manifested in us. How does Christ show Himself today? Well, His body is up in heaven. He's he's at the right hand of the Father with all that authority. But He lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And He says, I want to show myself now in a different tabernacle. It's the church. And here we are together. You know how we can demonstrate the unity and the humility and the glory of the death and the burial? By seeing that humility and saying, I want to take on that humility. It doesn't come from any earthly region. Where did it come from? From the heavenlies the grace of God has given that now we are motivated to live this Christian life and it starts with saying who we are and then keep going down until he says come on let's pray Father we thank you thank you for the glory of the humility of Christ we would like to go on and see the exaltation but the rest of the story awaits us but we know that. We know what the story is. Jesus Christ has been exalted. He died for us and He exalted, was exalted. And that is for us too. So that we too one day will be exalted. We're not exalted here, Lord. We have our daily fights and our struggles. The contest that come against the Spirit. The flesh desires to overtake the Spirit. And the Spirit has a, quite the struggle with the flesh. That explains our lives. The Lord, You win. And may we ever have that before us even more, that today, each one of us would recognize that I must see the interest of others over myself because of what Christ did for me. In Your Son's name, Amen.